Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Thanks, Dr. Aiken. Hey, glad that you're here. I want to make the most of our time, so uh, be scrolling or turn to Luke 7. We'll be there in a minute. Again, great to be at Southeastern. And uh, what I told Dr. Aiken privately, let me say it publicly, very, very, very grateful for uh, his leadership at Southeastern and the way that he has molded biblical fidelity and conservative theology with also understanding we live in a uh, very, very interesting uh, culture. And his desire is to equip you again with a good hold of the Bible as well as being able to exegete your culture. And so very, very grateful for that. If I had a a son that wanted to go to Southeastern, I would send him here, all right? Or if I had a son that wanted to go to seminary, this is where I'd send him. As a matter of fact, I did. I have a, my older son, the one that it, uh, we found out recently uh, in May. We're going uh, to be grandparents. I'm still taking votes on what is the proper name. What are the, what's the proper name to be called as a grandparent? I'm still trying, trying to figure that out. But uh, he came here, graduated here, uh, was equipped here. He's now back in Asheville, so very grateful for Southeastern on a number of fronts. But Here's the reason to kind of want to set the whole thing up when it comes to Luke 7. Uh, You probably already understand we live in a very crazy uh, cultural moment, very crazy cultural moment. There's a pastor up in New York City named John Tyson. A couple years ago, I heard him say this about the contradictions that uh, we are living in in the culture right now. He says, we have the rise of the gay rights and the rise of the alt-right all at the same time. We have the loss of religious liberty for bakers and pizza shop owners, and at the same time, the Supreme Court, election of Supreme Court justices and pro-life religious liberty all at the same time. There's a decline of the church and the rise of the nuns and the rise of the mega churches and celebrity pastors all at the same time. We have the Me Too movement rushing through our world at the exact same moment as Shades of Grey is picturing the domination of women is the fastest and largest selling book among women of all time. We have the rise of hate speech and the defending of free speech. All right, we can just go on and on with these contradictions. And the bottom line is the church is not handling it very well. Just statistically, uh, in the next seven years, they say that there'll be about 55,000 churches that close their doors every year. 55,000 churches in the next seven years will shut their doors. I've seen them in Asheville. They used to be churches, now they're taverns. Southern Baptist life, half of our churches didn't baptize anybody last year. Zero, okay? 80% of our churches are plateaued or are declining. Of the 20% that are growing, about half of those are only growing through transfer growth, getting sheep from somebody else and then making them come to their church because they got the cooler band or the younger speaker or whatever. So you've got a very small percentage that are actually impacting the culture. And so what happens is the church is really not not engaging the culture that well. And so when we look at all of those things, I was uh, uh, in London, we are partnering with uh, the Summit Church to do a church plan over in London. We went over there a few weeks ago, and in doing so, we're talking to the church planner over there in London. London, England is 2% professing Christian right now. 2% professing Christian in the city of London right now. And if we're 100 years or so behind Europe, if something doesn't change, if the church does not engage uh, the culture uh, the way we can, the way we should, the way we're called to, uh, that is what is going to happen. Uh, when, I enge- when I proposed to Lori, we met in seminary. I was at Southwestern. She was in nursing school, uh, not growing up with any sisters, not growing up around virtually any jewelry at all. I didn't know what it was to pick out a ring. So I went to the jeweler. I asked for to see some diamonds. Uh, the diamond 
person, he took out a piece of black velvet, and on the black velvet, he then brought out all these diamonds. Now, I gotta tell you, the diamonds were awesome in and of themselves. As a seminary student, I had about 60 bucks on me. I was gonna try to leverage, to, to be honest, my car got stolen at Southwestern four times, and the fourth time, I didn't use the insurance money to fix the car, I had to use the insurance money to buy an engagement ring. Please forgive me, Lord, but I have a phenomenal wife, but here's the, way, here's, the way I, here's the way I bought it, is when I went there, they put all of these diamonds on this black velvet, and when they put it against that backdrop, man, those things just popped. It was amazing. And so I didn't come here to discourage us about the state of Christianity in the West or the state of the SBC uh, specifically, uh, because there is in the text today an amazing diamond that just shines out about in the midst of the culture that you are going to be thrust into as a pastor or as a missionary, how do you then engage uh, that culture? You can do it. All right, I've seen it done. Uh, to give you one quick example about a church that had to change the way they were engaging their culture, uh, the church that I get to serve, and I've been there 11 years, 30 years ago, was down to a couple hundred people less than are right in here on a Sunday, and they were down to and they had about 60 of them on a Wednesday night in Asheville, North Carolina, 60 of them in a gymnasium. Uh, they, it was like the book of Judges. They had, they'd had great cycles of blessing, and then they would disobey the Lord, and God would judge them, and then they would cry out to God for mercy, and then he would send it. So you had all this up and down. But they were down to about 60 people at a Wednesday night prayer meeting. They cried out to God, repented of their sin. They repented of worshiping at the altar of their personal preferences. And over the last 30 years, the God, God has seen fit to bless that church in amazing ways. We've seen over 600 people baptized each year the last several years. And that is from 60 people saying, we have to reach the community that God has put us in and we have to change. And so when we look at all of that, here's, I'm going to give you kind of what I would say two ways that churches tend to fall into, and then we'll jump into the text. Uh, churches and Christians, we tend to respond two different ways and get in two different ditches. The first one is, and this is generally for the generation that is older than me or going down toward me, and that is you condemn culture. You're a culture warrior. You condemn culture. You remove yourself from the world. You retreat into a subculture. You feel like I cannot associate with sinful people because if I do, then I will be endorsing their behavior. And so that generation, that group that wants to condemn culture, you see it on Facebook, you see it on Twitter. You, you don't see it much on Instagram's the happy place, but on and Twitter's the sad place, all right? Twitter's the land of Mordor, that's the bad place to go. So they sit there and they, they condemn culture. They're upset because lost people are acting like lost people. The problem with that is when you don't engage with people, you have virtually no impact on the culture you're called to actually reach. I'm in a, Asheville is a place that is, prides itself on keep Asheville weird. So there is a number of cultural crossroads and what I wanna just tell you is, you don't have to condemn culture to impact culture. What I would say the next generation struggles with is not condemning culture but conforming to culture. Conforming to culture is whenever culture and historical Christian teachings disagree, culture is accommodated. Usually it's almost with a zeal of evangelism. If we want to stay relevant in a post-Christian age, then some of this Christian stuff has got to go. Please hear me on this. When the church loses its gospel distinctiveness, it loses its prophetic voice. And you will not have the impact that you think you will. And so here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a story. It sounds like a joke. It's basically, it's, it's Jesus and a Pharisee and a prostitute. They go to a party. That's really what we're looking at today. So Luke chapter 7, 
Look at verse 36. I'm going to read through some of the text. I'm going to bring up some of it uh, as we go along, and I'll be mindful of the time. But here's verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So let me give you a little contextual scene here. The scene is at a dinner of the home of a religious leader. In that context, normally if you're going to have a rabbi over, this is like a big deal. Apparently it wasn't a big deal to Simon. You guys know the protocol. You guys are doing your hermeneutics. You guys are doing your biblical backgrounds. You know the story. The story is when you had somebody over in that culture, you would greet them. And there's a, there was a way to do stuff. The way to do stuff is when they would show up, you would usually like kiss their hand. You would then wash their feet or at least provide a basin of water. Simon didn't do either one. He didn't greet Jesus. He didn't give a kiss on the hand. He didn't provide a basin of water. Sometimes you would then take a little bit of ointment because it was a dirty, stinky environment. You would put a little drop of oil on their head. He didn't do any of that. He just dispensed with all of it. And then out of nowhere, the, the author says, and behold, which means there's something unusual he wants us to see. There's a woman who crashes the party. She's not invited. She's not expected. It says she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's a polite way of saying she was a prostitute. Verse 38 says she was weeping. This wasn't just a tear. This was uncontrollable sobbing. It's the same word that's used when Peter denies Jesus three times, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly, the text says. So this lady comes in, she sees Jesus. We don't know how she got there. Maybe she heard teaching, whatever it is, she shows up. He's holy, I'm unholy. The closer I get to him, the more unholy I feel. So loved ones, here's what I wanna do. If you're gonna leave anything today in the next 20, 25 minutes, I want you to think of two gospel bookends when you try to minister to the culture, whether that culture's Asheville, whether that culture's Atlanta, whether that culture's Michigan, how do you, in the midst of a crazy cultural moment right now, how do you walk in the way of Jesus? How do you minister with the joy of Jesus in a crazy cultural moment? First bookend. First bookend is a gospel-centered, a gospel-centered compassion. All right, and I'm going to hammer this for a few minutes. A gospel-centered compassion. So when you look at this, verse 39 says this. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, what did he see? What's this? This is the reaction of the woman who came in uninvited and her reaction when she got near Jesus. He said to himself, if this man, and there's a sense of derision there, if this man were a prophet, he would have known, and don't miss this, who... Who and what sort of woman this was? Literally, it means out of the dirt. It means what kind of dirt, what kind of rock did this woman crawl out from under? He's objectifying her. She is a political position. She is a Facebook post. It's like what kind of person, who, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. His instinct as a religious person was to condemn her and to condemn Jesus. Holiness to him was defined by distance from sin. And I'm not saying you're not going to get ridiculed if you do this, but you do need to understand association with sinners is not an endorsement of their sinful behavior. The biggest criticism of Jesus came along those lines. He associated with sinful people, and so they ended up grouping him in saying that he was endorsing what they did. 
And let me just tell you as, a seminary, as seminary students, the scary part here is this is a religious leader who is an expert in the law, who spent his life studying the scriptures, preaching to people, talking to people about the things of God. He knew his Bible very, very well. And all you can discern from this is you can know something by heart and yet not have it in your heart. You can come to Southeastern Seminary and your professors can pour into you and this can be the driest time in your spiritual life. And you can become dead as a hammer in seminary as you study the Greek and the Hebrew. And so the warning of it is this, this is a great example here of not just the fact that, okay, just because I'm in the profession, just because I'm a minister does not mean that I can't lose my heart trying to do some good things. It's actually a great example of the difference between religion and the gospel, but different sermon. Verse 40. Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Then he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender, and he gives him a little, uh, he gives him a little parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? This is not a hard question. This is not like a super hard question that is like, I got to think about it. Even he knows the answer. So Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, he'd already been judging the whole time. This time he's actually judging correctly. Look at verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, don't miss that. He turns to the woman, he looks at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water, for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with the ointment. Listen to me, what I wanna to try to do is, in the next couple of minutes, I wanna give you some warning signs. Now, I'm not saying it's in a full-fledged, metastasized state at this point, but I'm gonna give you four things just from the text, and this is a little bit of a aberration from what we dealt with church-wise, but I thought this is seminary, we gotta, there's some warning signs in here that if you don't deal with these warning signs, they will eventually get out of control. And a quick little story about, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago, um, I was at the doctor, the doctor's like, hey, there's some numbers here that are a little bit weird, let's keep an eye on them. And so six months later, I go back, hey, these numbers are up again a little bit, we gotta be kinda careful about this, let's really take an eye on this. And then I went down to Dallas just for a routine kinda big total physical that I do every four or five years, and they said these numbers are really up. Long story short, uh, they went and they said, we have to do a biopsy, all right, a biopsy, all right? Biopsies, we gotta go in there and we gotta, which by the way was like the worst 15 minutes of my life, I'm not gonna describe it. I'm just saying they had to go in there and they had to take uh, samples off the inside of the prostate wall and they would grab them and long story short they came back and they said all right two of the 12 samples they came back uh, cancerous uh, and they gave you a bunch of numbers they said you have a little bit of time but you need to make a decision because the longer you wait the longer you put it off the longer you ignore it the longer you don't do anything about it the longer you do to take action the chances are this thing will get outside of this area and after it's outside of that area it's very very difficult to control that to say I want to give you really quickly all these are little sermons of themselves let me just give you four as a seminary student what you need to say okay is this true in my life 
Does this have a warning sign that these things are starting to take place in my life? And you're going to see them right here from either Simon or the woman, okay? So warning sign number one is you, are, you become angry at other people's sin more than your own. You become angry at other people's sin more than your own. He looks at the woman and he's like, who and what sort of woman is this? What trash, what kind of woman is this that came into the party uninvited that I am throwing? Who and what sort of woman? What kind of dirt is this? Simon saw a, an object. He saw a project. He saw a issue. He saw a political position. And what I've noticed is in my journey the last 10 or 11 years is having had seven years of theological education, I'm like a lot of you, I'm like a lot of people, I had to get rediscover the gospel was where the motivation comes from for everything. It's not just the way I got saved as a 17-year-old, it's the way that I gotta grow and get sanctified and the way I love people and the way I forgive people. If it doesn't stem from that, it's gonna, it's gonna run out. And so here's what we're seeing is, is, listen, if you've been transformed by the gospel, the primary display is not with other people's sin, but the way that you view your own sin. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have, we have very strong convictions, and you need to have very strong convictions. But if you're more upset about sin in the news than you are sin in the mirror, something is wrong in your spiritual life. If you can look in the mirror and just kind of blow it off and then get upset about all these positions and do your blogs and all this kind of stuff about the way people are acting in these certain environments, then something is wrong. Because bottom line, the gospel says, you know what? You were, or even you are that person. What did Paul say? Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, and I've misread it for years. He said, I, he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners whom I am chief, who I am foremost, who I am the worst of all. He doesn't say I was. He says I am. You're like, really? He's the worst sinner? He was worse than like the, he was worse than the Caesars? He was worse than Nero? He's worse than, no. He's not saying that necessarily, he is saying when I look in the mirror, the gospel had so humbled him, he actually was extremely convicted of the person, not just that he was, but the person that he still was. Uh, Brene Brown, her TED Talk on vulnerability has over 15 million hits. And here's what she said. I'll just say this and we'll kind of we'll go on here. She says, we are those people. The truth is we are the others. Most of us are one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people. The ones we don't trust, the ones we pity, the ones we don't let our kids play with, the ones bad things happen to, the ones we don't want living next door. And so again, to feel good about yourself, to point other people's faults and weaknesses out, if you don't know anything else, if you and I get saturated with the gospel, it is amazing, like nothing else, it produces amazing humility and amazing confidence all at the same time. You're humble because you and I were so bad, Jesus had to die for us, and yet we're in such a great position because he chose to die for us, and we've been adopted and redeemed and reconciled and all those wonderful things. And so... This religious person, he got angry at hers worse than he did his. Let me give you a second one. Uh, your worship is real casual. I'm not going to look around. And as a matter of fact, my, uh, to be honest with you, my confession is I sit on the front row during our worship services and, 
And uh, I've actually had to learn now, and to, you know, we teach our worship leaders, they don't close their eyes. You know, that's just like I'm not leading anymore when I do that. So the idea is I do it a little bit because I found out if I don't, I get so preoccupied and I start looking at stuff that is wrong versus actually engaging in worship. So pray for me. I'm going to work in progress in worship. My wife is next to me, and she's just like going all in, and, to- and she's obviously worshiping better than I am. But you look at this guy, and, and, or you look at the lady. She's teachable, she's humble, she's sacrificial, she's emotional, she kissed his feet. One of the worship words, proskuneo, means to blow a kiss toward. Is that a description of the way you worshiped a little while ago when these guys and ladies were leading us in some phenomenal worship? If not, you're going to have another chance here in a second. Okay? When you start singing things like Exalted Over All, which I think is one of the songs, if you can't sing that with a heart bowed and a hand raised, then ask the question, has my worship gotten really casual? This lady comes in here and she's emotional. And what's Simon? Eh, eh, eh. I don't need to mess with your hand. I don't need to mess with no oils. I don't need to mess with no water. There's a lot of ways we are descriptors of worship. Sitting in chapel with tweeting and thinking about something else or with a cup of coffee, that's never mentioned in the Bible. You're like, well, I don't come from a real emotional background. My challenge to you would be just try to turn the dial up to absolutely the red line from the way that you were the way that you were raised. Is your worship casual? I'll give you another one real quick. You're slow to repent. You're slow to repent. The woman is a picture of repentance. Repentance is my heart changes and then my behavior changes. She's in tears, why? Because she hates her life and she wants a, she wants a new life. So Jesus calls her out of her sin and then gives her a new life. Martin Luther called this heart water. Simon's like, there's two categories of people. There's two categories of people in here, and there's the holy and the unholy. Simon's like, I'm in the holy. Jesus, you and this woman, you are in the unholy. Jesus comes on there and is like, you know what? I'm not just a good man. I am the God man, and there are two categories of people. You've judged rightly. There's holy and there's unholy. I'm the only one in the room in the holy category. You two are unholy. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I heard a long time ago, what you do when you sin tells everything about how well you understand the gospel. What you do when you sin tells everything about how well you understand the gospel. I will tell you for years in my propensity as a type, as a type A, D on the disc profile, eight on the Enneagram, all that stuff, my propensity is to run from God when I fail because I want to give him time to cool off. And God has had to saturate me with, you know what, provision has been made for my sin. And so to run from healing and to run from grace is foolishness. So I might fall seven times, but I can get up and run in repentance, all right? So I can either run from God in shame or I can run to God in repentance. Which one do you do when you fail? Again, not if you fail. I distinctly remember, this is the dumbest memory I think I ever had, and you're going to like, what were you smoking back then? I would say, I remember coming back from my ordination service, not having grown up in church, so all this stuff was still kind of new to me. I'm probably about a, uh, I'm probably about a five-year-old Christian and all this. I remember coming back from ordination thinking, man, I wonder if I'm ever going to sin again. Am I ever going to struggle? Am I ever going to struggle with sin? What's the answer to that? Yes, you are. The question is, what do you do when you sin? And I'll give you this last one. Uh, here's, here's when you know there's a warning sign, is when all your Bible study, all your seminary, all your Hebrew, all your Greek does not lead you to love people and love God more. 
If all your stuff doesn't lead you to love God and particularly love people more, you're like, well, that sounds kind of like mamby-pamby, kind of soft. And all. Understand what it's saying. If, you, if your Bible study doesn't lead you to love more, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Jesus is going to say, you know what? You loved a little. She loved much. You loved little. Right now we're in a series at our church called Just Love Your Neighbor. You're like, where'd you get that? Well, you know where I got it. You got it when the guy comes up and it's like, hey, what's the main thing you don't want to miss in here? And he goes back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, and he says, you know what? You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then depending on the gospel you're looking at, it says either the second is like it or it just goes right into it, almost pushing the two together, and says, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what I want to just try to drive home to you right now. With... Uh, with Simon, it's not that Simon didn't love people because Simon had people at his party. Simon just loved people like Simon. Simon just loved people like Simon. Simon threw a party. Simon loved his friends. Simon just loved people like Simon. If you fast forward some chapters, what you're going to see is Jesus says, hey, when you throw a party, when you throw a party, you go and throw a party to people who can never pay you back who can never pay you back. And you're gonna to have to model this for your people, folks. And the more you model this for your people, I promise they will respond. They will respond, but they gotta see it in us first. Because here's what happens to pastors, and here's what happens to seminary students. If you are not careful, what you do is you just go from one church thing to the next church thing to the next church thing, and one class to one choir practice, we don't, we don't have a choir, so people don't go to choir practice, but they go to one music rehearsal, to one Bible study, and all of a sudden, you can go months and not ever have any kind of authentic relationship with lost people. Let me ask you a question. If I were to say, can you have three people that are on your phone that are lost without Christ that you could text right now after chapel and say, hey, you want to go grab a cup of coffee? Do you have three people like that? You have three people that would not go, who is this? Who, Bruce who? I don't even know a Bruce. You have three people like that. Because bottom line here it is, you're not going to meet one person today. I don't care if you're a two-point Calvinist, the seven-point Calvinist. I don't care what you are. You're not going to meet one person, not one waitress, not one person you see, not one person who gives you a hard time. You're not going to meet one person who is not made in the image of God, who is not loved by God, not one person. And the question is not, does God love him? God loves him. The question is not, does the Father love him? The Father loves him. He sent the Son. The Son loves him. He died for him. The Holy Spirit loves him. He's the one drawing him. Saved people in heaven love them. They're the ones that throw a party when one gets saved. Lost people in hell love them. There's a story about a brother that's like, go and tell my family so they don't come down here. The question is, do we love them? The question is, do you love them? And so Simon obviously did not. And you're like, well, what do we do from there? What do we do from there? We, I'm not saying that you don't have convictions, but you got to have compassion. That's where we fail the most. What's the number one critic, what's the number one thing that's thrown it to Christians now is you're self-righteous and you're hypocritical. You're self-righteous. You're self-righteous. You know what I've learned as a lost person of 17 years when I, was, I understood that, you know what, you can tell whether you're an object or a project or whether somebody actually cares for you. What Dr. Aiken said earlier is, my brothers didn't preach that much. They did. The older brother did a little bit. But I could not deny the joy they had and the love and the patience they showed toward me that was absolutely antithetical to the way that I treated them. So number one, you got to have on one book and you got to have gospel-centered compassion. The other one, let's just finish this one a little quicker, gospel-centered conviction. 
If you read this story and you think, well, Jesus minimizes her sin, you'd miss the whole story. Because in the story, he actually uses the word sin, deviate, three times. And he doesn't even say you got a little sin. He says you got mega sin. It's big. It's heinous. It's ruining your life. You got all that stuff. So he's not downplaying her sin at all. He doesn't say it wasn't that bad. He doesn't say after all you've been through, I can understand. He doesn't say you've had a hard life. He doesn't say it's an alternative lifestyle. Verse 47 says your sins are many. They're great. They're large. They're huge. Again, to picture him minimizing the sin is wrong, but what he does, he says, your sin can be forgiven. And so when the grace of God and the gospel of God comes into her life, it changes her. You're like, how do you know it changed her? You don't have that much commentary afterwards. Let's just put one and one together. It says that she loved Jesus much. You see that very clearly. It's like she loved Jesus much. She has a picture of repentance. Other than maybe Zacchaeus and the prodigal son, she's like the third best picture of repentance you know, in, the, in, in the New Testament. But she loved Jesus. So what is the, what's John 14 say? John 14 says, a person like that, if you have my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. He it is who loves me. So she looks at Jesus, worships Jesus. Jesus says, I'm God, you're forgiven, I give you a new life. And so here's my challenge to you. The gospel response, the way of Jesus, shows you can have both compassion and conviction. It's not an either or. Most people in this room, you're one or the other. You and I have a tendency, a propensity, to either be a grace person or a truth person. Um, I'll tell you right now, uh, I buy a propensity and I am a recovering legalist and I'm a recovering Pharisee. I have a tendency. My tendency, especially in the flesh, is to get all truth and no grace. People don't like, I don't do good counseling. I'll just, those of you that are in counseling, thank you. Because people like me send people <laughs> to you all because I'm terrible, right? I'm a terrible counselor, right? They come in, they'll give me their problems. like, well, stop it. Stop sinning. Next. That's what, that's, and so what's happened though is you get enough wounds, you get enough failures, and then God begins to soften you up some. Some of you though are on the other side, you're like all grace and no truth, and loved ones, that's not really loving people. All grace and no truth where you won't tell somebody and have the conversation that you need to have, that's not loving anybody. I promise you, when you go into the ministry, you're going to see some people that they need some tough love. Somebody to come up and say, I was talking with a guy this uh, last week, last week. I'm not making this up. He says, I, I found out he left his wife and his two boys. Found out he left his wife and his two boys. And so I finally called him up. And everybody, all the other pastors, they tried, they tried, they tried. No, he wouldn't. So I called him up. I just on the way home, I thought, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Shockingly, he must have not had caller ID because he picked up. And it's like the crickets. So I was like, hey. Pastor Bruce here, it's like, I want to, I'm just Christian cussing is on the other line. And his, we talked, and here's what, in the summer, here's what he said. He said, my wife wouldn't read the Bible with me. She wasn't concerned about what God was teaching me, and I was always trying to pray with her. And I'm like, bro, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So you are directly disobeying God, saying that I'm leaving you because you won't do these things that I'm trying to lead you in spiritually. I go, do you not see, do you not see the whole misunderstanding? I was like, person, how did God change you? Romans says it was his kindness that led you to repentance. How are you supposed to love your wife? You're supposed to love her like Jesus loved you. So all that to say, 
It's been said many times, truth without grace is brutality, grace without truth is sentimentality, compromising either for the sake of the other makes us unlike Jesus. So here's the way the story closes, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Again, you know that's not that they were forgiven little, they just have, they don't have an understanding of how much they were forgiven. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, one last thing. Please note, please note the order here. The order is super important here. Your sins are forgiven and now go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Your identity is changed. You become an adopted daughter of Almighty God. Your identity changes, and then now you go in peace. Then your activity changes. You are not in the fix-it business. You can't fix somebody. You can't fix somebody. God can fix somebody, and God can heal the broken heart. Our job is to talk to them, communicate the gospel to them, and love them. First thing, it changes is identity. Then what happens is the activity. Same thing in John 8. They throw the woman caught in adultery in front of all these people. And what does Jesus say at the end of the story? Okay, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Identity changes. Neither do I condemn you. You're not condemned. You're not condemned. Then your activity changes. Go and sin no more. If you don't get that, you're going to continually be hammering people. You're going to be like the farmer yelling at his crops to grow. Grow, grow, grow. That's not going to make them grow any faster, bro. It's not going to make them grow any faster at all. Unless you plant and water, unless God calls the growth, it's just not going to happen. I'll close with two things. One, uh, if you kind of lean toward condemning the culture, let me remind us, when Jesus walks, who's Jesus? In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is walking, He's not walking through the White House. He's not walking through the UN. He's walking through the churches. It's like, church, you do this, you do that. And the bottom line is, it's like, all right, if it's going to change, there's got to be something. And I so appreciate all the leadership in denomination and schools, but all the campaigns, all the slogans, all the emphasis, all that is not going to change at all it's not going to make a blip on the radar screen unless something right in here changes. And it really starts at a seminary just like this. So about, I told you we went to London about a month ago just to kind of check out stuff. By the way, which is like the easiest mission trip. I mean, that's, it's like, yeah, want to go to London on a mission trip? We had people like signing up left and right. Want to go to Asia? So anyway, so we go over to London and... Um, we we'll go over to London and they do this, we had an afternoon off and it was like this Christian heritage store, which is, it sounds touristy and it kind of is, but you, it has so much heritage. I mean, there's so much Christian heritage in London besides just historical stuff. It's amazing. But we do this one and we go into uh, this church and it's, it's, uh, it's John Newton's church. And it's, you know, it's a fourth this size. But they got this one of those, one of those old school pulpits where you, you know, it's kind of sitting about that high up there. And the guy doing it, I think I was the only pastor, I think, on that one, only preacher on that particular group. They're like, Pastor, go up there. It's like, it's weird because it's almost like holy ground. It's like, this is John Newton's church. I can't get up there. So, but anyway, he talked me into it. So I get up there and I was like, you know, doing it. It's like, take pictures, you know, you're acting like you're preaching and all this kind of stuff. Like over there in the corner, that's where he talked with William Wilberforce and gave him counsel as Wilberforce was, you know, the 
the kind of the tip of the spear to, to get the slave trade, getting it out of Europe, and then eventually affecting us as well. All that stuff happened right there. And then so I got intrigued with John Newton because of all that history, and then I started reading all these quotes and all these letters. And let me just end with this one quote because I thought this is, uh, this is what it's all about. This is something he said actually toward the end of his life. He said, he said although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. Just think about it. He's like he's, he's about to die. It's like I, I can't remember a lot, but he said, I, I know two things real clearly, and these are the bookends that we just talked about. I'm a great sinner. He said, I'm a great sinner. I'm a great sinner. He said, but Jesus is a great Savior. If you can just keep that in mind, man, God will bless your ministry in an unbelievable way. Father, thanks for these men and women here. Thanks for their call in their life. Thanks for these musicians that help us, help us blow a kiss toward you. Help us to bow the knee. God, whether we're singing exalted overall or, or whatever, God, I pray that especially there's some students in here, maybe there's some struggling in, in different areas, relational issues, sin issues, whatever. May this be the time during this time that we put you back on the throne. It's like, God, you are exalted over everything in my life. God, I don't want to pray for their ministries. There's missionaries and pastors and all sorts of leaders in this room. Some will be graduating soon. Some will be graduating in three or four years. But God, I pray that your hand would be on them and help them just continually every single day preach the gospel to themselves so they would give them that distinctive Christ-like feature of amazing meekness and humility, but amazing boldness. God, I pray for Dr. A can keep him strong and Keep that this amazing vision for this school and what it can be and should be and will be for the glory of God and for the good of other people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.